Hi, Greg Perry, the Historic Preservationist. Welcome to episode 254. Let's talk about colonial or early colonial revival architecture. The late 1800s was a period of the great architectural richness. The Queen Anne, Romanesque, and shingle-style houses were full in full bloom, with Queen Anne and the shingle-style showing signs of great enduring popularity. They coexisted with East Lake and the stick styles, and the early examples of the prairie and bungalow styles. In the midst of all this, a wave of nostalgia swept across the country. Inspired partly by the centennial celebration of 1876, and partly by incidents such as the demolition of the celebrated John Hancock House in 1863 which shocked New England and the rest of the country. Americans were beginning to take an interest in their past and its good old days, before the American Revolution and the Industrial Revolution. So this episode is going to examine the beginnings of colonial revival in architectural style that began roughly in the late 1870s and how it flourished into the present. Victorian America found living in an age of rapid industrial technology technology that was a great change, was quite wonderful, but wearing, fascinating, and also frightening at the same time. Relief and national pride mingle with a feeling that things seem to be moving a little too fast for comfort at the end of our first century. As George C. Mason, Jr., a noted Philadelphia architect, observed in 1881, no wonder we were ready to step back a hundred years into the past, to the good old days when George III was king, when stately men and women glided through life in quiet dignity. But Mason admitted, none too rudely, that it might not be so easy to escape the hurly-burly of the late 19th century especially when it came down to the houses in which we lived. The world has moved on and men have changed, and habitations must necessarily reflect our taste. It was clear that although popular sentiment called for a return to the simple English, German, and Dutch dwellings of our colonial past, Americans still wanted to enjoy the conveniences and delights afforded by the King and Queen Anne style. There were good reasons for the Queen Anne houses, suited contemporary needs well with their expansive spaces, flexible floor plans, interesting building shapes, and big verandas. Well, real colonial homes were inspirational in a patriotic sense. They struck the late Victorian eye as small and plain, dowdy, in fact, compared to the commodious Queen Anne house with its rich mix of buildings, materials and roof lines and bays and corner towers. Genuine colonial homes didn't have a central furnace to warm the backs of family members, huddled around its open fireplaces. Consequently, rooms were small, separated by corridors and fitted with snugly closing doors. Worst of all, colonial homes did not have those wonderful verandas 
No question about it. The homes of our noble forebearers were sadly lacking in modern comfort and convenience. Yankee ingenuity refused to be of any interest in classicalism among many of America's young architects, were being trained in or greatly influenced by the rigorous traditions of France's École des Arts. They learned to apply the concept of architectural historicalism to American buildings, specifically the Georgian and federal style buildings being rediscovered in towns such as Newport, Rhode Island, and Salem, Massachusetts. Charles McKim of McKim, Mead, and White led the way in the late 1870s by embarking with his firm on a well-publicized tour of New England's historic houses, (coughs) measuring and sketching all the way. Their examples encourage other architects around the country and talented amateurs to do likewise for the old houses of their own regions. McKim is also credited with the first full-fledged colonial revival house, the Henry A.C. Taylor residence of Newport, built in 1886, which was praised as a reassuring alternative to the exuberance of the Queen Anne style and the spatial intricacies of shingled houses. Other architects turning to America's architectural legacy included Arthur Little and Herbert Brown, and Brown of Brown and Peabody and John Stearns of Peabody and Stearns. In an 1877 article written for American Architect, Peabody called upon architects to look no further than the Georgian mansions of New England for inspiration. Just a few years later, George Mason urged members of the American Institute of Architects, the AIA, to humbly and earnestly study the principles that shaped building in the colonial period, not merely to copy quaint details, but to learn how the forms they admired have evolved and how they could best be used to serve the new age. An architect, Glenn Brown of Washington, D.C., made colonial architecture his specialty, restoring a number of 18th and early 19th century buildings including the Octagon headquarters of the AIA itself. The first colonial revival houses were much bigger than their colonial antecedents, but the shapes were simpler and more rectangular than Queen Anne structures in general, closer to the boxy look of the originals. Off came the towers and most of the projecting bays. Exterior trim became restrained, classical in form, Adamesque swags in gambled pediments and molidian and dental trim at the cornice line were used. Porches were likely to be supported in the unadorned Doric and iconic mode. Roof lines were streamlined, and hardly anybody saw the need for more than one kind of roof to a building anymore. Gables or gambrels, or a subdued, hipped or pyramid-style roof served this less flamboyant error quite well. One or two building materials, wood, brick, or stone, simply handled, seemed more suitable than multiple siding materials. As in the colonial originals, doorways became the focal point of the facade. Larger-than-life broken pediments, rare in real colonial buildings, 
often appeared above six panel doors, along with elliptical fan lights and fanciful tracery. Windows were less likely to be of the many panes swinging casements favored in the Queen Anne enthusiast. So now the double hung six over six window sash, or even nine over nine or twelve over twelve, gave way to the right of colonial fare in the broader window openings of the new day. Small panes were used in the upper part of the windows, while the bottom sash was fitted out with a single large pane. Bullseye or small oval windows added interest to upper stories, and the arch palladian window never lost its appeal. Colored glass, however, began to seem flashy for increasingly conservative taste. Streetscapes took an increasingly sedate air, as blocks of peasant but unassuming buildings were mostly symmetrical facades fill, filled the suburbs. As in early American neighborhoods, the houses seemed to share a family resemblance. Variety for the sake of variety was losing its charm as a subtle traditionalism began to edge out the yen for novel ethics. Interiors were changing too. Although floor plans were still flexible, the decorative elements were quieter. Staircases assumed elegant, gently curving handrails with simple turned balusters. Fireplaces, as much coveted in the turn of the century colonial, colonial revival houses as they had been in Queen Anne, but they looked different now. They were more likely to be flanked by delicate classical pilasters and surmounted by paneled overmantels than to be surrounded by fanciful tilework and heavy mirrors in carved and vanquished frames. Prominent chimneys, so important to Queen Anne buildings, were still nice, but they were no longer played in a major role. And, of course, big chimneys were hardly necessary anymore, thanks to those giant fireplaces and cast-iron cookstoves. Since the original colonial buildings were usually small and simple, it was fairly easily, easy to adapt the style to cottages. For the larger, more elaborate houses, the captains of industry demanded from their architects. However, it was necessary for the original colonial unit to be enlarged and repeated until the desired size was achieved. Very early colonial revival houses were even close to architecturally correct. Generally speaking, this was not an important concern until after 1900. By then, architects had poked around enough of the genuine colonial houses, measuring them, drawing them to scale, checking out old deeds and contracts and land records to recognize and care about authenticity. For the most part, early colonial revival houses were overscaled and casually ornamented when compared with the originals. And they were all those lingering verandas, yet they were deeply satisfying homes to the millions of Americans who wound up living in them. Verandas or not, they seemed to link up psychologically with a past that was not only simpler, but undeniably, gloriously, our very own. Thanks for listening. Greg Perry, signing out.